For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a report on the latest drain to the water in Lake Powell. It's coming from Utah. How a group of the most popular authors in America are striking back against the banning of books. Why a small town in Arizona was renamed after a Prussian immigrant back in 1869. And learn about living with colorblindness and some new tech that can change that condition. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Washington City, Utah is home to the city of St. George, and it's become one of the fastest growing areas in the nation. But that growth is on a collision course with our planet's limited supply of water. Next, David Condos of public radio station KUER in Salt Lake City reports. Washington County's population has already quadrupled since 1990 and is projected to double again by 2050. So where will all the water for those people come from? Well, for nearly two decades, a lot of folks here thought the best answer was building a pipeline to Lake Powell, a 140-mile straw across the Red Rock Desert. But in recent years, the idea has become more of a controversial pipe dream than a feasible solution. Here's Washington County Water Conservancy District Manager Zach Renstrom. In engineering, we always say the best way to determine the strength of a chain is to stress it and let it break. And so the river was getting to a breaking point. And the Lake Powell pipeline just happened to come at the exact same time when this was going on. More than two decades of dry conditions have put Lake Powell in dire straits, dropping it to record lows. And the surrounding states are locked in a high-stakes fight over the future of the strained Colorado River, which fills the reservoir. But in Washington County, growth has kept marching on. So local leaders are rolling out a new plan to get by for the next 20 years without the pipeline. It comes down to two big ideas, reusing and conserving the water it already has. And you can see there that... uh... St. George Water Director Scott Taylor stands on a platform overlooking a concrete waterfall as it cascades into an underground pipe at the water reclamation plant. This This water, he estimates millions of gallons a day, is rushing downstream and out of St. George's grasp. Through emerging technology, the city can clean sewage enough to recycle it back into the system. It could irrigate farms, golf courses, and parks, and leave more in the tank for drinking. But right now, the city doesn't have enough space to store it. All that water that's going in that pipe is flowing straight out into the, to the Virgin River. It lets me know that we have, uh, we have a resource we can better develop and use. The city now plans to construct new reservoirs to hold more of it. But those will take years to build, which makes conservation even more critical in the here and now. District Conservation Manager Doug Bennett walks through a demonstration garden near his office. It's filled with all kinds of native plants, from towering cacti to dainty flowers. The district has begun paying residents to rip out their thirsty grass lawns in favor of landscaping like this. Bennett says it's vital to the area's survival, even if getting residents to break that manicured green barrier isn't always easy. 
they might live on a street where everybody has grass in their front yard and they're like, I don't know if I want to be that guy that you know, sticks his neck out and does something weird and everybody looks at me funny. As soon as somebody does it, it becomes a contagion. But Ed Andrichek with Conserve Southwest Utah has concerns that the area's water leaders might not be planning far enough, fast enough. I think by their own words, they would say, yes, we'll get all this done and it'll generate enough water to meet the demand through about the end of the 2030s. And then, then what? Even District Manager Renstrom says this plan isn't meant to be a long-term solution. It's essentially about buying time. I think in 15 years, about the time I'm retiring, we're going to have to have another very intense conversation about what we're going to do here in this county. So at least in some corners, the debate about the Lake Powell pipeline may be far from over. In St. George, Utah, I'm David Condos. Coming from Station KUER in Salt Lake City, that story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, distributed by KUNC Colorado and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. This week, the novel 14 Days made its debut. Edited by Doug Preston and the famed author Margaret Atwood, the work is a collaborative effort from the author's guild. It intertwines over 30 literary voices, including many you know, like Diana Gabaldon, Celeste Ng, Maria Hinojosa, John Grisham, R.L. Stein, and others. It's set in a Lower East Side tenement in Manhattan during the early days of the pandemic. It's about an eccentric group of New Yorkers who meet on the rooftop and tell each other's stories, becoming better neighbors with each passing day. On Monday, February 5th, at the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Doug Preston and Diana Gabaldon spoke with fellow bibliophiles to talk about the work, and ACPM's Katja Mendoza was there. Likened to the Decameron or Canterbury Tales, 14 Days is not your average anthology. Instead, it's a collaborative effort thanks to the Authors Guild and recruitment efforts of Margaret Atwood. Co-editor Doug Preston says thanks to Atwood's heavy lifting, the project was able to start about four years ago. She is an incredible writer. She has the literary stature. So she was really the perfect uh, editor to recruit the authors. And we had a wonderful response uh, from all different kinds of authors, from Diana Gabaldon to to, uh, John Grisham to uh, Dave Eggers, uh, Celeste Ng. I mean, you just wouldn't believe the diversity of authors that contributed. Preston says the Authors Guild had been in talks about an anthology, but given that the Guild represents authors across many genres, it's near impossible to create an anthology with that kind of diversity. So we came up with this idea of a pandemic novel in the sense that the, the setup for this novel is that uh, during the, lo- the first lockdown in New York City, their group of tenants in a very shabby building in the Lower East Side were going to the rooftop to just get the fresh air and to cheer on the first responders. And of course, being typical New Yorkers, they have no interest in talking to each other. However, after a time passes, they start to talk to each other, and then they start telling each other stories. And these are stories of all different kinds, about their lives, about ghost stories, um, horrifying stories of crime and punishment, confessions, um, stories about all different kinds of things. Pretty soon, this group on the rooftop becomes sort of a, a COVID community. And so that's, that's basically the, 
the setting for the novel. The authors were not given guidelines or rules, just that the stories had to be told in first person. Fiction writer Diana Gabaldon, who is known for her Outlander series, contributed two short stories, one of which is based on her father's passing. I have these two ghost stories, which are nonfiction, which I you know, lend out as, essentially for worthy purposes. And so I wrote back to them and I said, well, I'm you know, up to my neck in book, etc. And I don't normally write short stories. It would take me forever to write one. But uh, would these do? And they said, oh, yes, that would be perfect. So. Preston says readers won't know who wrote what story when they read the novel, comparing the book to a literary puzzle. The greatest challenge was coming up with the fictional characters on the rooftop to tell the stories. And by far, this was the hardest uh, creative project I've ever worked on. Because about three quarters of the way through the project, I thought, oh my God, this is not going to work. It's going to be a colossal failure. What are we going to do? Thank God it, it isn't just a success, but I think it's an outstanding read. Earlier this week, both Preston and Gabaldon were able to share the novel with fellow bibliophiles at the Poisoned Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale. Doug Preston fan Lorraine Domenshadei says she is amazed at the diversity of authors included in the innovative work. I'm just excited to read all of their different voices and the difference in the voices. Diana Gabaldon fan Charlie Thompson found out that he has a personal connection to one of her short stories that was revealed during the author's Q&A. Oh my goodness, talk about serendipity. One of her stories is about her father, who was a state senator and chairman of the Arizona State Senate Education Committee. Fortunately, I had a chance to work with him as I was the staff director at the Arizona State Senate from 1972 to 1979. So I worked with her father for basically seven years. The Honorable Tony Gabaldon represented citizens of District 2 in Arizona, including Flagstaff and Navajo and Apache counties. He passed away in 1998. It's been really fun following her career. Gabaldon says readers will be able to take away a little bit of everything from this novel. Some people read to, you know, confirm their prejudices or their expectations. Other people read in a spirit of uh, enterprise and excitement and curiosity. And basically you're going to find the sort of thing that you're looking for. If you're looking for your own reflection, you'll probably find some of it, especially in a in a book with uh, such a myriad of, uh, of stories from different viewpoints and uh, different uh, ethological backgrounds, I guess you would say. Preston says the deepest message of the book is about human beings telling stories to speak out against the terror, tragedy, and unknowability of the universe. It's how we deal with, with adversity by telling each other stories, and that's what this book is all about. All proceeds from 14 Days are going to support the Authors Guild's efforts against book banning, their support of authors' rights, and their efforts against big tech companies stealing authors' books in order to train AI systems without compensation. It's going to a very good cause. It's really supporting American literary culture. So uh, when you buy this book, you're actually supporting authors' books and the whole literary ecosystem. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Katya Mendoza. The collaborative novel, 14 Days, is now available across all formats, including audiobook.
It's the job of writer David Layton to explore history and unearth facts behind local legends. He does this for his monthly Street Smarts column in the Arizona Daily Star. Next, David Layton tells us about the rarely talked about life of a man that he calls one of our state's most important pioneers. His name was Herman Ehrenberg, and he even has a town named after him. I had seen the name on maps, you know, off and on for years, and I was just curious. I was like, you know, where does that name come from? Um, so I looked it up in uh, Will C. Barnes' book, Arizona Place Names, and it said it was from this guy named Herman Ehrenberg, who was originally born in Prussia in 1816. He had a very international life. Seems like he traveled a lot. But when he was a young man, he wanted adventure. He didn't want to sit there and work as a, an accountant in some little store in Germany. Um, he wanted to see the world. So he actually came to the United States uh, in the 1830s, ended up in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. And it wasn't too long after he was uh, living in Louisiana that he joined the military. Yeah, when the uh, Texas Revolution broke out around 1835, he signed up with the New Orleans Grays. Uh, which was a military unit from New Orleans uh, that traveled to Texas to support the Texans uh, against the Mexican military. Texas wanted to separate from Mexico and no longer want to be a part of it. Um, so the Texas Revolution, also known as the Texas War of Independence, took place, and he was a part of that. Uh, his unit was attached um, to Colonel Fannin's uh, division of the Texas military. Um, they were captured by Mexican soldiers, and what's known as the Goliad Massacre took place. Um, to the best of my knowledge, basically, they took uh, several hundred prisoners out unarmed and then shot them. And he was one of the few that managed to escape the massacre. What he did basically is when they were about to shoot, he dropped to the ground. So he was able to avoid getting shot. As the smoke was clearing, he got up and ran away. And then one of the higher-ups in the Mexican military caught him, and they, I think they sliced his forehead um, as punishment. But because he was very young, I think he was, I don't know, 17 or something like that, they kind of let him go. And so later on, um, he returned and became a citizen of the Republic of Texas. Texas became its own country after it separated from Mexico and before it became a state of the United States. Continuing his wandering ways, it says that he went back to Europe to receive some medical attention around the year 1840. Yeah, around 1840, Ehrenberg becomes sick and decides to travel back to Europe. He goes back to Prussia, which again is now Germany. While there, he teaches English, and he also writes his memoirs for a book called, I think, Texas and its Revolution, uh, which became one of the most popular selling books in the German language on the history of Texas. In spite of all this adventuring, you still refer to Herman Ehrenberg as one of Arizona's most important pioneers. So let's talk about how that is so. By 1853, Ehrenberg's living in San Francisco. He meets a, a man by the name of Charles D. Poston. Uh, many people know him as the father of Arizona. Charles D. Poston was aware that the United States wanted to acquire what's now southern Arizona from Mexico so they could have a southern trail, a railroad route to California. Now, the Gadsden purchases land, what's now southern Arizona, south of the Gila River. But 
1853, before the purchase, it was still part of Sonora, Mexico. So they traveled down to Sonora, what's now Sonora, Mexico. Ehrenberg, who was a civil engineer, basically mapped out a town that he called Colorado City. Now, there was no actual town there or anything like that. It was just across the Colorado River from Fort Yuma, California. He just set it up. Now, nothing ever really happened there until years later. It's now what's called Yuma, Arizona. And then they headed back to San Francisco. He submitted what became the first map of the Gadsden Purchase. So the first map of what became Southern Arizona after the Gadsden Purchase was made, uh, 1853-1854, he made the actual map. What do we know about how Herman Ehrenberg met his end? Uh, he was at a stage stop in California, um, not too far from the uh, Arizona-California border. He rested for the night at a stage stop. He had a lot of gold with him. He was killed. The gold disappeared. They think it was the stage station uh, manager that was there, mm -hmm. but it's not known for sure uh, who killed him. So after the death of Ehrenberg, a friend of his, Michael Goldwater, who I believe was Senator Barry Goldwater's grandfather, decided to rename Mineral City, which was a town that had been surveyed by Ehrenberg on the Colorado River, named in his honor. So if you're traveling the I-10 into California, um, you'll pass the little tiny town of Ehrenberg, Arizona, on your way to Blythe, California. My guest, David Layton, writes the Street Smarts column that appears on the first Monday of every month in the Arizona Daily Star. His article on Herman Ehrenberg was published this week. Next, learn about the genetic condition known as colorblindness and join five individuals in Tucson as they use some newly designed corrective glasses to see colors they have never seen before. It is produced and narrated by my colleague, Koich Nisiminen. Most of the time I just tease him about the color choices of his apparel. Uh, fashion sense. Right, so what colors are you wearing now, John? Um, so I'm wearing my favorite brown shirt. So the idea for this story came about when my colleague, John DeSoto, here's John, came to work wearing a salmon-y pinkish shirt, this shirt. And I commented that it was an interesting color in him. And he said, oh, really? I wouldn't know. I'm colorblind. Surprised by this, I asked him if he ever tried those corrective glasses ever. And he said, no, they're just kind of expensive. So naturally, I decided to do a story about this and set out on a mission to get John these glasses. And just when I was researching how to go about this, we learned of a partnership between Arizona State Museum and Enchroma, the company whose co-founder, Don McPherson, was the one who actually invented the lenses designed to address the symptoms of colorblindness. So it was all just kind of meant to be. This partnership is part of Enchroma's Color Accessibility Program, where they donate glasses to organizations like schools, libraries, and parks, so that people with colorblindness can experience those spaces in more vivid color. In my life, I've not run across that many people that really seem to be interested at all. When it came to colors, I'd just back off and not say anything. And I'm a student here, and I'm studying uh, archaeology. And that's a lot of where I hope that these glasses will help help things be easier for me. Oh, these glasses, I think, <laughs> are gonna open my eyes to what I've been missing low these many years. 
On this day, four colorblind individuals were invited to the museum where a press conference was held to witness their first experiences with the glasses. The biggest thing is it's embarrassing because I can't match clothes up well. My wife really gets on me about that. Like John, one thing they all have in common is having trouble getting dressed. I, my wife always had to dress me because of a wrong color tie, wrong color shirt, wrong color pants. Apparently I'm a moderate, moderate dresser. I've never had, with the exception of some purple socks that my kids made me buy. Or it hasn't ever prevented me from actually doing something. Just in my profession, the only thing that it's hindered is when it comes to color grading footage. Um, I'm probably not the best person for that job. And it hasn't ever really hindered their lives or professions in any significant way. I was an audio recording engineer, so being colorblind was not a big deal. I was a pharmacist, because then you just went by identification, the, the markings on them and the size and all that. I was a university professor for about half of my career and a working engineer. I've never struggled over it. And their colorblindness seems more interesting to those with normal color vision, perhaps because they don't know what they've actually been missing, and we can't imagine a world without the full spectrum. For lo these many decades, it's not a big deal to me any longer. So I don't actually know maybe how bad <laughs> it is for me. But it's going to be interesting to find out. <laughs> so what is colorblindness? First of all, the biggest misconception is that colorblind people see the world in only shades of grey, black and white. This is called achromatopsia, and it's extremely rare affecting only one in approximately 30,000 people. Whereas the most common types, which is red-green colorblindness, affects approximately 300 million people worldwide. And maybe you're wondering why all the colorblind people in this story are male. That's because it's a sex-linked genetic mutation that is passed on the X chromosome. Females have two X chromosomes, so if a female inherits one normal X chromosome and one with the mutation, she won't display the mutation since it's a recessive gene. Males are more likely to be colorblind since they don't have a second X chromosome to override the chromosome that carries the mutation. And this is why 95% of colorblind people are male. Physiologically, colorblindness happens when a type of nerve in the retina, called a cone, isn't working correctly. These cones are what processes light as it enters our eyes and sends signals to the brain that allow us to perceive color. And there are three types of cone cells, and each has a different sensitivity to blues, greens, and reds. Typical color vision involves the slight overlapping of these three cones, and this enables us to detect up to one million different shades of color. Color blindness happens when these cones overlap more than normal, and this causes confusion between specific colors. The more overlapping of these cones, the more color confusion it creates. And there are different types and intensities of colorblindness. One way to find out what type of colorblindness you have is to take an online test, as John is seen doing here. And this allows Enchroma to determine what type of colorblindness you have and what lenses will be most effective. No, nothing. Nope. Three. <laughs> nothing. So how do the glasses work? By using advanced spectral notch filters, Enchroma glasses selectively filters out wavelengths of light at the point where confusion or excessive overlap of color sensitivity occurs. Upwards of 80% of people affected by these types see an improvement, allowing them to perceive more colors in bright and vivid detail. Oh dear, well, <laughs> that's way different.
these two, without the glasses, and these two. You know, they're, they're pretty much equal in brightness, intensity, and in color, and, and saturation kind of thing, you know. But now, they're way different. <laughs> well, what I can see better is each individual piece I can, I can pick apart. Our wall of baskets. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Those are something. Wow, look at that. And Chroma makes glasses for both indoor and outdoor settings. And when the four participants went outside, they experienced a much more dramatic difference. Wait, are these, are these trials red? Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that's, that's red, all right. It's <laughs> red brick, but it's. Here, you want next? Yeah, let me. Let yeah. And for John's big moment, I brought him to the most colorful place I could think of the Tucson Botanical Gardens, where we were joined by his wife that's and daughter. Right. I expect to see more vividness in uh, sort of greens and reds since those are the two main colors that affect the type of colorblindness. Once we did do like the color tests, it was phenomenal to kind of notice. We all see seven. You don't see the number seven? I don't, I guess I, I don't know what to expect. This is exciting. <laughs> Ooh. Seriously? Oh my gosh. That's weird. <laughs> That's purple. That's purple. <laughs> it's. Can you see these? Uh, those are definitely red. Mm -hmm. That's definitely red. Oh, like the contrast in the red and green is like super significant. Wow. <sighs> Look at your shirt. It's green. <laughs> oh, For dang. Sure. Where is it? That's green. What did you think it was before? Brown. <laughs> oh, that is weird. How <laughs> green the vines Those are very green. I'm left wondering why it's so moving to witness someone with color blindness oh. using these glasses. I think because it's so sad to think of the world any less vibrant. But this is subjective. There are, in fact, many, many more colors that people with normal color vision can't see, like infrared and ultraviolet. And it's impossible to even imagine what they look like, because we lack the visual literacy to articulate them. But perhaps one day, the technology will exist that will allow us to see how much richer and vaster the world and cosmos actually is. This is Koichni Simon for Arizona Spotlight. That's red. You can see a fully produced television version of the story you just heard on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Alicia Vasquez. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.